this week on Hope for the Broken. Though he was crucified on the cross, he is resurrected. He is alive today. And the thing that I want to encourage us to hold in view is this, that though we face many difficulties, though we have moments in our lives where we fail, there is one who really desires to hold our identity. It's the Lord Jesus that we can be found in and secured and let him define us, not our failures and our defeats. And he is greater than the grave. Welcome to Hope for the Broken, the audio podcast ministry of Trinity Baptist Church in Mount Pleasant, Texas. I'm your host, Austin Mahoney. We exist to become a gospel-centered community redeeming brokenness through hope in Jesus Christ. At Trinity, we believe we are all broken and in need of the redeeming hope found in Jesus. For more information about our church, visit us on our website at trinitytx.org. This week, we celebrate our risen Lord on Easter as we begin a new series called Greater Than. Here's our pastor, Chris Wigley, with part one titled, Greater Than the Grave. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. That's exactly right. We gather here today to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Today, we're also kicking off a brand new series of sermons uh, that I'm excited about that we have entitled Greater Than. And over the course of the next several weeks, we're going to be taking a look at the fact that Jesus is greater than several different things that I think are common uh, experiences in our lives. And the fact that he is greater than the grave is proof that he is greater even than the circumstances that seem to often discourage us and threaten our happiness and contentment. And so we're going to begin there today. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be in Romans chapter 8 here this morning. And, uh, and we're going to read through and understand how Jesus is greater than the grave. By the way, if you don't have a Bible with you, there is one located in the seat rack in front of you. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, you need a Bible, uh, that is yours to keep. Feel free to take that uh, f- uh, for you. For you, Those were donated to us, and so we would love to pass the blessing along to you. As I was thinking about the title of this series, Greater Than, I was reminded about a story that I heard years ago uh, about a little boy about seven or eight years of age uh, in the backyard playing baseball by himself. In fact, I think Kenny Rogers popularized the story in a recording that he had uh, that he called The Greatest. And, and this little seven or eight-year-old boy was in his backyard imagining in his great imagination that he was playing in the Major League Baseball World Series. And what he was doing is he was acting out the game. And as he was acting out the game, he is narrating the game. And so he would throw the ball up in the air. He'd swing the bat and hit the ball and act the game out in his backyard. Well, it came to the bottom of the ninth inning. And he comes up to bat and he is excited as he takes in the sights and the sounds of his imagination of the crowd roaring. And as he steps into the batter's box, he makes a proclamation. He says, I am the greatest hitter in the world. And he proceeds to take the baseball, throw it up in the air, and he swings and whiff, strike one. Undeterred, he picks up the baseball off of the ground and he makes the statement yet again, I am the greatest hitter in the world. 
And he throws the ball up in the air, and this time he swings as hard as he absolutely can. Whiff, strike two. A little bit discouraged, he still is undeterred. He picks up the baseball, looks around, makes sure no one else is watching him, and he says, I am the greatest hitter in the world. And he throws the ball up in the air, and he gets ready to swing at this baseball and to beat it with strength that he can muster, all the strength that he can muster. Whiff, strike three. He bends over, he picks up the baseball, and he goes, wow, I didn't know I could pitch like that. I am the greatest pitcher in the world, right? You know, I love baseball. I, I get to coach baseball. I, that was my kind of my sport growing up, uh, a sport that I seem to excel at. And I just, I love baseball. And I love baseball for a couple of reasons. I think, number one, I think baseball teaches uh, great, valuable life lessons. For example, consider all of the greatest hitters that have ever graced the game of baseball. You think of professional baseball players like Ted Williams and Ty Cobb, Hank Aaron, right? And what about the Babe? Let's not forget Babe Ruth, right? And these, these hitters were tremendous hitters and have gone down into the history books as some of the greatest hitters ever. Did you know that the greatest lifetime batting average in Major League Baseball is 344? right? 344. It's by Ted Williams. He owns that title, the greatest batting average in the world. Now, for those of you that are not baseball fans or that doesn't sound like something that you can relate to, this is what that means. 34.4% of the time that he went up to the bat, did he get a hit? Or you can look at it this way. 66% of the time, he either struck out, grounded out, flied out, lined out, or popped out. So baseball, the thing I love about baseball is it's the only sport where you can fail the majority of the time and still be really good, right? It's this idea that teaches us some life lessons. There are times in our lives when we fail, times in our lives when we get knocked down, we strike out. And we as humans, sinful humans, have a tendency to allow those moments to define us. When in reality, there is one that bats a thousand. He is perfect. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is indeed the greatest of all time. And what proves him to be the greatest of all time is that he has conquered the grave. He is greater than the grave. Death had no hold on Jesus. Though he was crucified on the cross, laid in a tomb, he is resurrected. He is alive today, as we're going to see. And the thing that I want to encourage us to hold in view is this, that though we face many difficulties, though we have moments in our lives where we fail, there is one who really desires to hold our identity. It's the Lord Jesus that we can be found in and secured in and let him define us, not our failures and our defeats. And he is greater than the grave. That's what this series is all about. And, and we see this particularly laid out in Romans chapter 8. We're going to read verses 1 through 39, but I want to begin with verses, uh, sorry, not 1, 31 through 30. Y'all are thinking, man, this is going to be a long sermon. 
No, 31 through 39. Let's first zoom in in 31 through 34. Paul, the writer of Romans, says this, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up us for, for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Oh, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Several things here in one of my, what is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. First, the, 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 the obvious thing that lips off the page to us is that Jesus has more than died. He is raised. It means he has resurrected. Jesus not only died on the cross, but he rose victoriously. And here's the thing that I want you to, to understand, for all of us to understand, is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most certain event in all of history. No doubt about it. This is certain. And despite many attempts to discredit or disprove the resurrection, the fact still remains Jesus has resurrected from the grave and he is alive today. Think about all the different kinds of evidence for the resurrection for just a second. You know, the, the Romans were experts in carrying out execution by crucifixion. Uh, Jesus' body was checked and cross-checked. It was signed off on by what would be a medical examiner, given his body into the hands of, of a funeral director who then prepared his body for burial and wrapped his body in a shroud and placed him in a tomb. And this tomb then had a giant stone that was rolled in front of it that sealed the tomb. Yet Jesus came bursting forth from the grave. Now there are people who claim to know where his remains are, but they're not his remains. For centuries and for millennia, the church is forever held to this concept of a resurrection, not a revival, a resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, the disciples staked all on that very assumption, that very belief. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, he says, if Jesus is not resurrected from the grave, then we as believers in him are the most to be pitied. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus is the event by which our faith hinges. And if Christ is not resurrected from the grave, then he is not our Savior. But the truth is, is that Jesus is indeed raised from the dead. One of the most convincing pieces of evidence to me is the willingness on behalf of the disciples to even die for that belief. I read this week uh, Chuck Colson. He is an author, theologian. He said it this way. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. Y'all remember Watergate, the Watergate scandal? At least maybe if you weren't around then, you've heard about the Watergate scandal in Washington, D.C. How does Watergate prove it? Well, because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. 
Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Compelling, right? That's because Jesus died. But more than that, he rose from the grave. Therefore, the conclusion that you and I come to is the title of this message. Jesus is greater than the grave. And because Jesus is greater than the grave, it means a couple of truths for us today. Things that profoundly impact our lives. Things that give us hope. Things that allow us to live life in a sense of victory. And Paul presents them to us in Romans chapter 8. Because Jesus is greater than the grave, number one, he is greater than our sin. Jesus is greater than our sin. Our passage this morning that we read begins by asking a series of rhetorical questions. What shall we say? Who is against us? What charge is against us? Who condemns us? And the answers to these questions drive the readers to the only true response. Well, no one. Because Jesus is greater than our sin. And he's greater than our sin because he is indeed greater than the grave. The first question that Paul poses is, what shall we say to these things? Well, what things? It's the promises and the actions of God leading up to the eighth chapter of the book of Romans. Well, what do those include? Well, things like my favorite verse in scripture, Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us. And this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's a truth of God's word. What else? Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The fact that these things are true means only one thing. That no one can be against us because God has forgiven us. There is no charge against us. No one can condemn us. Oh, but we're guilty. You and I stand guilty before a holy God, guilty of sin, guilty of disobeying him. I'm the chief among sinners in this room. So how can we come to the conclusion that there is no charge against us. Well, Jesus at the cross of Calvary took upon himself our sin and our shame. Those things were nailed to the cross. And we were at that moment blood-bought. If you are in Christ, you have been blood-bought and forgiven. And your salvation, as we say, is secured. Now, this is extremely important. And we know this to be the case that Jesus is greater than the grave by three things that Paul mentions, or that he's greater than our sin, by three things he mentions in this one verse. Chapter 8, verse 34, again, which reads, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So Paul says Jesus is the one who died. Now that's extremely important. 
And the writer of Hebrews built upon that very foundational truth by saying this, and by that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once and for all. Well, what does that mean? It means that the purpose of Jesus' death on the cross, the purpose behind what we celebrated a couple of days ago as Good Friday, was that Jesus made a one-time, for-all-time payment for your sin and mine. All of your past, all of your present, all of your future sin was nailed with Jesus at the cross. And as the great hymn concludes, and we bear it no more. This is a powerful truth of, of Jesus being greater than our sin. He is the one who died. Secondly, Jesus finished our salvation. Romans 8.34 continues, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. Again, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 1, verse 3, builds upon this truth. And he says this, After making purification for our sins, he, meaning Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, that being God. Why is it so significant that Jesus is at the right hand of God? More importantly, why is it so significant that he is seated at the right hand of God? Well, did you know in the Jewish temple, there was no seats reserved for the priest? The priest would gather together and offer on behalf of the nation of Israel a sacrificial lamb, take away the, the sin of the world, that their sins would be cast upon that lamb and that lamb's life would serve as a sacrifice for their sin. Well, as it would be, the people of Israel continued in sin. Therefore, this sacrificial lamb was continually needed to be offered. And therefore, the priest work was never done, never completed. Well, here... Jesus climbs upon the cross of Calvary. John the Baptist proclaiming him to be, behold, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He made a one-time and for all-time payment of our sin upon the cross, was laid in a tomb, rose on the third day, spent 40 days amongst his disciples and then ascended into heaven. And when he got to heaven, he did what? He sat at the right hand of God. Why did he sit? Because of exactly what he proclaimed upon the cross. You remember one of the sayings that he proclaimed? He said, Tetelestai. die. means it is finished. What is finished? The once and for all time payment of our sin. Jesus is seated because sin has been defeated and salvation has been finished. So Jesus died for our sin. He finished our salvation. Thirdly, Jesus is interceding for us. Verse 34 of Romans 8 wraps up by saying, Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Though the work of salvation has been finished, Jesus' work is not finished. 
He continues to have a ministry. It's called the ministry of intercession. Intercession is a giant word that means advocate on your behalf. In other words, he is the great high priest. And because Jesus has been the perfect sacrifice of sin, you and I no longer have to go through another human being in order to get to God. We don't have to go to a priest in order to get to God. No, the writer of Hebrews again says, we may boldly approach the throne of grace. Romans chapter 5 says, through Christ we have gained access to God. So as a believer in Jesus Christ, when you and I pray, our words are heard in the very throne room of heaven. Why? Because Jesus is seated there. And what is he doing? He's advocating on our behalf. So he has the ministry of reconciliation. Now this is extremely important. Because you want want to know one one of the most common things I hear as a pastor? This is what I hear. I hear, Pastor, I know God has forgiven me, but I just can't seem to forgive myself. Have you ever heard that? Maybe you've made that statement uh, yourself. I know God forgives me, but I just can't forgive myself. You know what I say to that? I pose a question back at them. Are you greater than God? The answer is obviously no then why are you holding on to something that God has already let go of? We we have this tendency to continue in our sin, continue in our shame because we feel bad about it. But let me tell you something, beloved. If you are in Christ, it was nailed to the cross. Done. Sacrificed. And if you are carrying the weight of your own sin and the weight of your shame, today I am telling you, based upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you can leave it at the cross. God doesn't remember it. In fact, God says this. He it says in uh, Psalm 103.12, he says, as far as the east is from the west, so far I have removed your transgressions from us. As far as the east is from the west. Think about that for a moment. You can travel east and never stop traveling east. And you can travel west and never stop traveling west. And this is the picture by which God paints is the separation of our sin from us. Only because of the cross of Calvary. Is that possible? Now, I think we often get confused about guilt and consequences. Scripture says that in Jesus we are freed from the penalty of our sin. We're freed from that penalty. Now it never says, Scripture never says we're freed from the consequences of our sin. You understand. Choices have consequences. And you have to deal with those consequences. And sinful choices have sinful consequences. And so we deal with those. But... We are forgiven of those in Christ Jesus. And so if you're carrying the weight of the guilt from your sin and your shame, I'm telling you that Easter tells you that you can lay it and leave it at the foot of the cross. We also know that based upon this word picture of the east ends from the west, that this is a permanent removal of sin. In other words, when God forgives you, 
It's not coming back upon you. God has forgiven you. He's taken out his wrath on sin upon his own son who became our substitute. Listen, at the cross, there was this great exchange that took place. God, a holy God, having to pour out his wrath on unholy sin, chose to pour his wrath out on his son who became our sin, who knew no sin, so that we in turn might become the righteousness of Christ. That's the exchange of the cross. And so when God looks upon us, he does not see our sin. He sees the blood of Jesus that we are blood-bought. And that's a forever thing. In other words, you cannot lose your salvation. I believe the Bible is clear about that. A couple of reasons why. Number one, salvation is not yours to gain. Therefore, it is not yours to lose. Scripture says that salvation is not by works. We don't do enough things in order to earn our salvation. No, it's a gift. And it's a gift of God. And so salvation belongs to God. And if it belongs to Him, then you and I can't lose it. What He does is permanent. But don't take my word for it. Consider Jesus' words. In John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29, this is what Jesus says about the permanency of salvation. He says, my sheep, who are my sheep? Those who have placed their faith and trust in him. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is what? Greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. If Easter tells us anything, it screams that Jesus is greater than the grave. Therefore, he is greater than your sin and greater than my sin. Amen? That's good news. But not only does his resurrection prove that he's greater than the grave and greater than our sin, it also proves that he's greater than our circumstances. Because he is greater than the grave, he's greater than our circumstances. And the teaching series that we're kicking off today, Greater Than, we're, we're, we're examining an overview of the individual circumstances that we're going to dive into over the next seven weeks. And so I hope you'll make plans to attend each of that as we dive deep into how Jesus is greater than specific circumstances in our lives, but Paul provides for us in Romans 8 an overview of those circumstances. Look at verse 35 of Romans chapter 8. Paul says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Now, when I read this list, I can see and I can identify with each one of those things. Have you ever felt the pressure of tribulation? Have you ever, could you ever describe a position that you've been in as a state of being in distress, deep concern? Have you ever been anxious? Have you ever been worried? Have you ever wondered how things were going to turn out? These are the things that he's meaning by this because I think in these examples, he's given us three groupings that you and I can identify with. The first grouping being tribulation, distress, and persecution. The word tribulation means to be placed under pressure. And the word distress carries the idea of being hemmed in. 
that this pressure is not only felt, but it seems to be coming from all sides. And persecution refers to affliction based upon one's belief in Christ. I think we all have the common experience of being in the pressure cooker, being hemmed in on all sides of life and the experience of distress and affliction. The second grouping is famine and nakedness. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to look at me to realize I have never experienced famine, right? You don't get this body by accident, right? But there are brothers and sisters that have and do experience famine. So how can we relate to this? Well, I think what Paul is driving at is while we may not experience a lack of clothing or a lack of food, we definitely have this feeling of having inadequate provision. Have you ever wished that you could save more in your retirement? Have you ever wondered where your next paycheck was going to come from? Have you ever wondered at any point in your life how you were going to make ends meet? Have you ever wished that you had just a little bit more? Have you ever looked at someone else and said, man, they have it so good, I wish I had it that good? See, those are things that we can identify with, and I think that that's the point of what Paul is driving at. The third and final grouping of circumstances mentioned in this verse is danger and sword. This is referencing a fear of death. I've told the other services that it was only two years ago that I stood in this very place and looked out upon this room that was empty on Easter Sunday. Pandemic. We were in full force. And we were afraid. We didn't know what to expect. And we didn't meet because we were fearful of maybe passing on a virus that was going to potentially claim someone's life because they were more vulnerable. So we isolated ourselves. We, our churches were empty. And what that highlighted, I think, for many of us is a fear of death. And can I just tell you something? The last thing that you and I should fear as believers in Jesus Christ is death. You know why? Because in Jesus, death is not an end. It's a beginning. And there is hope in that. And so we should not fear it. Now, with that said, I think God gives us a brain. Some of you go skydiving. You're, you're wanting something, you know what I'm saying? Some of you ride motorcycles like they're going out of style. And, and you all got a death wish, right? God gives you a brain. But at the same time, he doesn't call us to fear. And that's two different positions, you see. And so the point is, is that in these groupings, we can identify with them. We, we all experience worry, anxiety, conflicts, challenges, fears, and grief. This is why I think Paul mentions these things. But I want you to, to see the conclusion that he came, down, came to. Skip down to verse 37 of Romans chapter 8. He says, in light of those things, he says, no, in all these things, all these circumstances, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
Paul is picturing a believer that is hemmed in from all sides, feeling the pressure and the weight of this world. And he says you could be more than conquerors. That phrase, more than conquerors, can literally be translated as you can overwhelmingly conquer. One commentator I read said it this way, you can be a hyper-conqueror. means this, that you don't have just enough access to power to rise just barely above your circumstances. No, the idea being we are more than conquerors, we overwhelmingly, we hyper-conquer, means that we not only rise above them, but we do so with room to spare. You can be more than conquerors. I love that. But Paul is very specific as to how you gain access to this position of being a hyper-conqueror. He says this, that we are more than conquerors through Him. Well, who is Him? Through Jesus, who loved us. Through the One who is greater than the grave. Through the One that is greater than our sin. To the One that is greater than our circumstances. That's how we become more than conquerors. And I want you to know something, beloved. This is a truth. You and I, in and of ourselves, in our own strength, do not have the ability to overcome our circumstances. Just don't. Life sometimes is just too much. And what seems to pile upon us just seems to be more than we can bear at times. I don't know about you. That's true for me. And so I don't have within myself, I don't have the willpower within myself to pull myself up by my bootstraps and to overcome some of the pressures of life. But I have access to the one who can. I have access to the one who has overcome those things through Jesus. So one other thing that I think is important in this passage, and it's verses 38 and 39. Paul says this. He says, for I am sure. If you like to write in your Bible, I encourage you to underline, highlight, circle, square. I mean, do everything you can around that little phrase. I am sure. That means, Paul says, I am fully convinced Maybe your translation says, for I am persuaded. I am sure that what? Neither death nor life, nor angels or rulers, nor things present or things in the future, nor powers, nor height, nor death, anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's my question. How did Paul become so convinced? How was he so persuaded that Jesus is greater than these things? Well, we know how. We know that Paul experienced each of those things that he mentioned. Each of those things. He said, well, where do we know that? It's detailed and recorded in the book of Acts. You can go and read it. You can read about his derailment. You can read about his disappointment. You can read about how his plans didn't come together the way he wanted. You can read about his imprisonment. 
You could read about him being shipwrecked. You could read about him being bitten by a snake. You could read about him being stoned and drugged out of the city and left for dead only to get up and go right back into that city. This was a man who was acquainted with worries and pressure and anxieties and persecution and tribulation. He knew it. And here's what I want you to see. It is those circumstances that led him to pen what I believe to be his most famous words. Words that you and I have a tendency to take out of context. But no, we're going to read them. Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. They were written in the context of crazy circumstances and pressure. Paul says this in Philippians 4, 13, 11 through 13. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Oh, I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Verse 13 is often taken out of context. We take it to mean I can get that job description or promotion because of of Jesus who gives me strength. Yes, you can, but that's not the context by which this is written. It's written in the face of sorrowful circumstances. I can essentially, what he's saying, I can do, I can endure all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can rise above. I can be more than a conqueror through Christ who gives me strength. So when Paul says, I am sure, when he says, I'm persuaded, When he says, I'm absolutely convinced, it's only because that has proven in his circumstances. He's seen it pay off time and time again. And so he says, I'm convinced that nothing can separate me from the love of God. Have you been convinced? Are you sure? Is there anything that could keep you from loving or serving Jesus? And even if there was, he would never stop loving you. I have become convinced that I can be a more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus as Lord. Let me share with you how. I remember just over three years ago uh, when... Kathy and my family, we, we moved here to be a part of what God is doing at Trinity. Um, many of you may know this, some of you may not, but at that time, right as we were moving, I was diagnosed as having multiple tumors in each of my kidneys. And I'm telling you, that was, you talk about pressure. You talk about anxiety and worry. I mean, I've never felt it before in my life. I was driving one day. I called Kathy and I said, Kathy, I think I'm having a heart attack. She said, what's going on? I was like, I can't feel my left arm. Like, I see my arm. I can't feel it. And she's like, well, do you need to go to the ER? I go, oh, there goes the right arm. Right? And it was happening in real time. And I later came to understand that to be an anxiety attack. Now, I don't know if you've ever had that. That's real, y'all. That is That is real. And I remember having conversations with God going, what are you doing? 
I mean, are you just bringing me here for me to die? Like, what are you doing? And I remember the moment that my worry and anxiety left me. It was when all doors for me getting treatment seemed to be closing and then God opened up a door for me to be a patient at the National Institutes of Health. And I began to see God open door after door after door after door after door. I had surgery back in September. The doctor said this. He said, it'll be seven-hour surgery, Chris. You'll lose lots of blood. You'll need a blood transfusion. You'll wake up in the ICU. Spend at least one day in the ICU. You'll need to stick around for a week because there's some complications that are likely to happen. The surgery was four hours. Didn't need a blood transfusion. I woke up in a regular hospital room. That's the provision of God. And on this, this side of that, beloved, I can honestly stand here today and say, I am convinced that you can be a hyper-conqueror too. Doesn't mean that life is easy. Doesn't mean that it's always going to be smooth sailing. But it does mean that Jesus is always there. Jesus is greater than the grave. He is greater than our sin. And because of those truths, he's greater than your circumstances. Mark Batterson in his book, If, Trading Your If-Only Regrets for God's What-If Possibilities, reminds us of the 1977 power ballad, We Are the Champions. I want to read an excerpt of his book. He says, It was the traditional encore at the end of performances by the British band Queen. And while it never reached the top of the charts, a team of scientific researchers dubbed it the catchiest song in the history of pop music. Maybe it's the unique combination of jazz chords, major and minor 6th, 7th, 11th, and 13th harmonies. Or perhaps it was the male high C and falsetto belted out by lead singer Freddie Mercury. Regardless, once it gets in your head, it's tough to get out. And nearly three decades after the original recording, it was voted as the world's favorite song in a worldwide music poll. We are the champions, my friend. And we'll keep on fighting to the end. Freddie Mercury is no theologian. But what he recorded there resonates in our hearts. Worldwide, number one favorite song. Why? Because we are drawn to champions. We're drawn to those that conquer. We're drawn to the victors. And I think it's because we want to be champions. We want to experience the thrill of victory. So we're drawn to champions. Can I tell you something? There is an ultimate champion that has defeated the greatest enemy. That champion is the Lord Jesus Christ. That greatest enemy is death and the grave. And Jesus on Easter Sunday morning, the first Easter, walked out of that tomb 
saying, I am the champion. The question is, is, do you know him? Do you have a personal relationship with this one who loves you so much? Desires a personal relationship with you. Jesus is alive. He has secured a victory for those that place their faith and trust in him. You're listening to Trinity Baptist Church's Hope for the Broken podcast. If you would like to learn more about this ministry, visit us online at trinitytx.org. That's trinitytx.org. Here's Pastor Chris to wrap up our time together. Thanks for listening today. I'm so glad that you found this podcast. It is our prayer that you are encouraged and challenged by today's message. It is our goal at Trinity to lead everyone into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have questions about what it means to trust Jesus as the Lord of your life, we would love to connect with you. Please feel free to give us a call at 903-572-1959 or email us at info at If you are ever in the East Texas area, we invite you to join us for worship on Sundays at 9.30 or 11 a.m. Thanks so much for listening today. God bless you. We pray that you have experienced hope today. If you would like to support the ministries of Trinity Baptist Church with a financial gift, you can do so by giving online. Simply log on to trinitytx.org and click the Give tab. Be sure to join us next week as we look into God's Word on Hope for the Broken.